So I'm going to have you find a Bible and open it to Psalm 136. Psalm 136 is an Awana kid's dream because of the repetition of one phrase, which if you've remembered that phrase, you have about 87% of the psalm memorized. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to dig in and explore there. There's also an insert in your bulletin uh, that has many of the passages that I'll address this morning, but more that I won't. So if, if you uh, avail yourself of that, you'll have sort of a little program to follow, but also if you want to follow up with any of these ideas, there's just so many passages uh, to consider, and I think that if I were to consider the the hundreds of passages on this topic, it, it uh, might, might go a bit long. So uh, if you want to follow up in your own study, I, I would certainly encourage you to do that. And if you find that any of these ideas uh, really resonate with you, there's some opportunities for continued reflection. Uh, sermons are tricky things in that typically they've been understood as speeches. Uh, so if uh, I'm primarily an educator, so I think in terms of how much you retain in terms of just reading something, it's a very low percent. Just listening to somebody speak is still pretty low, but slightly better. Uh, but when you actually engage the ideas for yourself and actually teach them to somebody else, that's when you get the most yield in terms of uh, your own reflection. So reflection takes time. Uh, the passages are there. We've, we've got these minutes together, but if you want to continue uh, to explore these issues, uh, you, can, you can do that uh, with the insert. So uh, without further ado, one of the ways that the Bible tries to snap human beings out of their days, out of their uh, stupor, um, just to grab humanity's attention is they, it, it tries to open you up to a whole different world, uh, to a, a whole different perspective. And often the perspective doesn't address human concerns, right? So sometimes in the Bible, somebody has a dream uh, about something we might think is kind of weird, dragons or statues or all kinds of stuff, but that happens in the Bible, and one of the goals there is to kind of snap humanity out of, out of their days, out of their stupor, to, to break the routine so that they can see perspective in a different way. Um, and it doesn't address human concern. So one of the things we try to do, it's actually sort of a distraction. So uh, there was a time in which kids didn't need physical therapy for scraped knees, and they would come to you and they have a scraped knee, a scraped ankle, they fell off their bike, and there was a day uh, where you could get a scraped knee because you weren't all kinds of wrapped up in body armor and helmets and, and falling off the bike was, was just a natural part of life. So the kid comes to you and, and expresses their great concern that they're not going to survive this scraped knee. And what do you do, right? You, you try to distract them with something else. Like, yeah, we could go put a Band-Aid on it, but it looks like the game's starting back up. You might want to get out there, and, and typically kids can, can be distracted by that because the injury's not that severe. They can, they can run back out and participate in the game. You're trying to give them a different perspective, right? You're trying to open up their... Uh, open up the world beyond their injury, right? They're, you want to get them back out there and playing and realizing that, that scrapes happen. The Bible sort of does that. 
and out of what I believe is the overflow of God's wisdom, by focusing on something else, you find that not only are your problems maybe solved, but at a minimum, you have a better perspective on them. By thinking about something else, by changing your perspective slightly, you're opened up into this broader world where all of a sudden our problems and our anxieties, which are still there, seem to be smaller in the scope of all that God is doing. So, uh, I'm supposed to hit next slide, there we go. Um, So we find that it either solves the problem or helps us to recognize the problem for what it is. And I think that Jesus said it this way. In Matthew 6, he said, Don't be anxious then saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink? Or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. Like God knows he's not... He's not absent. He understands. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What Jesus is saying there is if you alter your perspective, if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you'll find that all of those worries and those anxieties Change. Now, what he's saying is seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. So, in a situation where we're tempted to worry, Jesus is compelling us to a change of perspective, to seek the kingdom first. And God knows we need all those things, it doesn't, um, it doesn't escape him. And we're likely to find that we're actually enriched. Our experience is enriched when we do seek first his kingdom. How many of us have, can attest to the fact, either way, that we sought first his kingdom and his righteousness and then we deeply regretted it because after the fact, God didn't provide for our needs? Does anybody really want to stand up and testify to that? Or how many of us on the flip side have found our perspective just radically altered by that? That, boy, when I put my own needs aside, when I put my own anxieties aside, I found that seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness really helped bring about a healthier perspective. I think that we have testimonies in that way. So as we turn to today's passage, I want to consider this idea. I want us to try to consider reality from God's perspective, and it does not come naturally to us. Okay? We're not naturally grateful people. I don't know if I just like pulled the curtain back on Oz, but how many of us really feel that we're naturally grateful people? And let me just, before you raise your hand, um, it's a discipline, I think. I think it's something that we have to be trained to do. So I'm guessing, and I could be totally wrong about this, but nobody got up this morning and just exalted the Lord that the limbs in your body were working. How many of you woke up this morning and you're like, whew, 
Look at them all go. Elbows working. Sun's shining outside so my house didn't fall into a massive sinkhole overnight. There's a stable earth for me to walk on. How many of you really exalted the Lord for that? Like it was your first inclination out of the overflow of your life. That was your first response. Was gratitude that there's something and not nothing. Me either. It was usually um, four wild flailings of where did the alarm clock, where did it go? Um, Which is not a grateful response. Um, We didn't begin our day with gratitude that our eyes are working, uh, that our limbs, everything's moving, there's a stable earth to walk on. I don't think anybody here is starving. That was not our first response, was gratitude. So I think when we turn to Psalm 136, we have a helpful way of disciplining ourselves and a helpful corrective to our otherwise self-centered, self-exalting ways of being in the world, right? Now, if I were to, to have something go wrong with one of those limbs, all of a sudden, you're aware of it, right? Elbow doesn't work. Steve limped into Sunday school this morning. Not, not limp, that might not be the right way to put it, but he uh, is sauntered a word, or he's not moving quite as fast as he maybe had the previous week. Uh, but when there's something going on there, all of a sudden the perspective changes. And I think we sort of have this continuum of gratitude and entitlement. And I think we think of the things that are positive in our lives as things that we did. And when things go wrong, that's God's fault, right? So that promotion that you got at work, that was you. You did it. But if your car has a flat tire when you go out in the morning, obviously that's God's fault, right? So we have this, um, we have this sort of gratitude problem. So we're going to look at Psalm 136. I'm going to offer uh, some reflections. There's going to be more background uh, work. Like I said, if you memorize one phrase, you basically have the psalm memorized. And what I want to do is I want to look at how does the Bible say we should give thanks? And how does it open us up into this altered perspective of gratitude? Because that's what God wants to do. He doesn't want us to just study the Bible and learn all kinds of obscure words. He wants this to transform our imagination, transform our perspective into something more whole. And we find, I think, when we do that, that our lives are enriched, that, that we start to touch the abundant life that Jesus talked about when we open up into these broader worlds. So I'm not going to read the psalm just yet. That's coming later. How many of you, as you've scanned the psalm, can find, like, what is that repeated phrase? Yeah. His love endures forever. How many of you have a slightly different? His loving kindness endureth. We've got the the King James flavor. But doesn't King James use mercy? Mercy? So it's his love, his mercy, his loving kindness. I've taken the liberty of putting all of these, you might not be able to see that, but it's on the insert. 
There's a bunch of different ways that this word is translated. And I think you need to see all of the English translations in order to get the sense that there's really more going on with this word than just simple love. So uh, the ESV has his steadfast love. The King James has his mercy. New American Standard has his loving kindness. NIV goes with his love. Uh, New Living has faithful love. Now, I've listed a bunch of different examples there uh, in that little box, which I'm not going to address, but this is actually a fairly common phrase in the Old Testament. And if you study nothing else this week or this month, that might be worth it, right? Look at the context of what's going on when kings or psalmists or anybody is saying he is good and his love endures forever. It's the exact same phrase in all those passages. So we typically choose love when we're translating this, but I have kind of a love-hate relationship with the word love because we only have one word to describe the full range of what we experience. Uh, We have this basis of affection. Like, I love the Red Sox, especially last night when they won 9-1 against Cleveland. Yeah, it uh, it it was pretty sweet. Lots of good diving catches there in center field. Uh, No bench-clearing brawls, at least that I saw. We love peanut butter. Anybody here love peanut butter? Right, okay, you got it. Uh, We love our grandmothers. Everybody loves their grandmother, right? Um, The only problem is we only have one word to describe all those things. And none of us would seriously suggest that we feel the same about our grandmothers that we do about the Red Sox. Now, I know you New Englanders. I've been a student of you for for a while. I don't know if it's like you have to live here 50 years before you really become a New Englander. But the love-hate relationship that you have with the Red Sox, Bruins, Celtics, basically any team in New England, shows that you don't feel the same way about your sports teams that you do about your grandmothers. But we only have that one word, so it's a little bit tricky. And we often, too often, I think, put this definition on God. So when the Bible talks about God's love, we have this idea of affection, that God has warm feelings toward us. Uh, And I I guess I don't want to discredit that, but I do want to look at this word and to see what it, what it means. The word is, it's just hesed. That's it. Just a tiny little word that we translate love or loving kindness or mercy or faithful love. And I think the New Living and the uh, English Standard have it best here with his steadfast love or his faithful love. It's a word that describes God's covenant loyalty to his people. It is not based on affection. It is not based on God looking at Abram and in that moment deciding that, boy, you know, he's a pretty good guy. I want to hang out with him and his descendants forever. It's not God doing that. It's covenant loyalty. So this is fundamental to God's character, his loyalty to the covenant. He keeps his word And this phrase tells us exactly how long he keeps his word. How long does God keep his word? Forever, right? It's another bizarre little, it's for forever, literally. His loving kindness, his whatever you want to translate it as, it's for forever. 
and I'm going to try to get through the rest of this. This phrase is just, um, I can barely make it through worship when this phrase is, is repeated in the songs because um, it's, it's just so much about God's character. What about the repetition? Every sentence in this psalm ends with this phrase. Now, we might mock that. Some of us who grew up in a Catholic background might look at that and say, like, yeah, it just has all the vain repetition of peace be with you, right? But what do you make of the repetition? Why is that phrase repeated 26 times? Because it's important. Excellent. See, you're excellent students of the Bible. When God repeats something... It's the same as when you repeat something. It's important to you. And it's important to the people who are listening. So there's a couple possibilities. Repeating things is actually a good way of remembering. And there used to be a time in which people had to memorize facts. And if you were to repeat this psalm over and over again 26 times a day times 365 days a year, this psalm, this phrase would become embedded in who you are. And it almost becomes a natural response when things happen that his loyalty is forever. So you're not going to forget the phrase. Another possibility is that it's read in the assembly of God's people so that we repeat the phrase constantly. Now, why would we do that? Because when we're gathered as the assembly of God's people, we are supposed to be speaking truth to each other. So in the midst of life's difficulties, in the midst of life's anxieties, his love endures forever. When we repeat that to each other, over and over and over again. Yes, can it become meaningless? Anything can become meaningless. Yet this is the testimony of God, and it's all over the place in the Old Testament. His loyalty is forever. So there's two possibilities. And I would say that this makes actually a great opportunity for meditation. Even just the phrase itself, without reading the rest of the psalm. Meditate on all the ways in your life that God's loyalty has been extended to you. And if you really think about it, how much of your life is dependent on what you have accomplished? I go back to my original point. We feel like we have accomplished these things, but how often do we reflect on the fact that we don't really create anything? Right, that we're utterly dependent on God for every ounce of our existence. We didn't make anything. Some of you are smart, but none of us are really that smart. Some of you are attractive, but none of us are really that attractive. You're not the most attractive person ever. Sorry to break anybody's bubble. The smartest person ever probably isn't sitting here right now. Um, he's down in Boston. Just <laughs> that. I like how I did that. Um, but we don't do any of that, right? We, didn't, we don't decide those things in our infinite wisdom that we're going to be born in a particular place at a particular time. We're contingent. And it's God's loyalty that is forever. So this might be a good meditation to think about all those things that you're, you're completely dependent on the Lord's faithfulness for. And then... 
go back and look at all those passages where this phrase is used and see how your list matches up with the list in the Bible. And I think when you really think hard about it, I'm going to get to a couple of quotes here in a second. Uh, when you think on the continuum of entitlement to gratitude, if you get right down to the subatomic level, every ounce of existence is dependent on God. And we don't notice it until something bad happens. Like all of a sudden, you're aware of the fact that you're contingent. God controls these things. You don't really ultimately control anything. So if I look at verse uh, 1, 2, and 3, how does each verse start? What verb Give thanks. Excellent. Give thanks. And then verse 2, give thanks. And then verse 3, give thanks. And then verse 4, it says, to him uh, who alone does great wonders. Could you put a verb in there at the beginning? What could you say? Give thanks to him. Give thanks to him. Verse 6, give thanks to him. So what's the, uh, I'll call it implied or underlying, What's the underlying virtue in this psalm? What is God asking of human beings? Give thanks. You could repeat that 26 times if you wanted to. So the underlying virtue is gratitude. We've already talked about the first three verses, but just to bring it on home, the last verse goes ahead and repeats, repeats the verb for you. Give thanks, give thanks, give thanks, give thanks. Why does God repeat things? Because it's important, and I want you to remember it, but what does it say about you and me if we need things repeated? <laughs> We're not going to remember, right? We don't remember. I was reading the end of Joshua, the book of Joshua, where Joshua says to the people of Israel, basically, choose this day who you will serve. If it seems evil in your sight, then follow the gods of the Amorites. But me and my family, says Joshua, will serve the Lord. And what is the response of the people? They're practically in church. Of course, we're going to follow the Lord. We're going to serve him wholeheartedly. We're going to give him our allegiance. We're going to give him our devotion. We're going to put away these idols. And then I started reading the beginning of the book of Judges. How long do you think it was <laughs> before they had forgotten who God was, they had turned to their idols, and abandoned this commitment that they made to the Lord? How many of us will abandon our Christian experience in the parking lot after church is over as you cut somebody off, hopefully in love, as you're you know, trying to get out of the... Like, it's, it's funny, in a sense... Um, because we are contingent, and I, I got no problem. We're, we're still sinners. We still make mistakes. I get it. But how quickly do we forget what God has done? Minutes? Maybe hours? So I think that um, the repetition is God wants us to learn it. It's important. And Andreas' word was thick. And that's just exactly right. Um, we're just stubborn we refuse to listen. We think we know better than God. And we constantly seem to be trying to prove it. God, I know that you say this. And I know that your word very clearly says this. 
but I'm going to try this. I mean, you're only infinite, right? You're only the creator of everything, but I'm pretty sure that my, you know, 20 years on this planet has qualified me as an expert in all things ethical, vegetable, animal, and mineral. I really, I really understand what to do, and I don't think that we do. The underlying virtue is gratitude. So we can be thankful that there's anything at all. Like, that's what I mean by bare bones. You can be thankful that there's anything at all, that you exist. That's a good thing. All of your experiences, all the joy that you've ever had is all contingent on that. God doesn't owe us anything else. He doesn't even owe us that. He doesn't owe us a Wi-Fi hotspot. I can't get service on my GPS. God doesn't owe you that. And that's where we jump from the extreme of gratitude to entitlement. Can I be honest with you about that? Honest with myself about that? I turn into a frustrated four-year-old at moments like that. And I kick the copy machine because it jammed or something utterly ridiculous like that. And kids will never know how cool the Atari controller was. That that joystick and... Well, the Danos are the happy exception. Uh, The joystick and that button were once the pinnacle of gaming technology. Now, they'll never have any sense of how cool it is to own an iPhone. That's awesome. Like, and something to be grateful for in a lot of ways, and maybe not in some other ways. But still, I can look at that and say that's pretty cool. But we're pretty quick to jump to the extreme of entitlement. I have to have four of those because I've uploaded every game in the whole universe. Like, you see, you see what I mean? We jump from gratitude from how cool something is and how our existence is contingent to I am owed all of this. And this is going to be a problem in this generation. God doesn't owe us any of that. So I put a couple of quotes up here uh, by G.K. Chesterton who I am positive that I have recommended before, but I'm not doing that anymore, and I'm going to tell you why. One of the really cool things about the internet is memes. How many of you have heard of memes? Excellent. Okay. I no longer have to recommend books. I, I love you guys, so I feel comfortable speaking the truth here. I know that you're not going to read them, for the most part. Some of you will, but most of the time, oh, you should read G.K. Chesterton. What you should do is Google G.K. Chesterton, and more specifically, G.K. Chesterton quotes, and all kinds of interesting memes pop up. So here's a couple of his quotes on gratitude. Gratitude being nearly the greatest of human duties is also nearly the most difficult. You can spend some time reflecting on that. Another one that I didn't put because I ran out of space G.K. Chesterton says, I would maintain that thanks are the highest form of thought and that gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. And then finally, this is kind of what I'm getting at here. If you spent some time reflecting on this next quote, you'd be in fine fettle. Here ends another day during which I've had eyes, ears, hands, and the great world around me. Tomorrow begins another day. Why am I allowed to? That's that baseline level of existence. I am entitled to nothing. Every moment of every day is a gift. How might your attitude change 
if that was our framework. Every moment of every day is a gift that you are not owed. How might that change? Would that produce gratitude? Because I see, I'm sorry. I would think so too. Right. Positive expressions that everything I have right now is a gift. And I didn't do anything to earn it. Um, it wasn't my brilliance that brought it about. I, I didn't do it. But I can be grateful for it. And Steve, uh, who, who was walking with his uh, cousin on Friday for, it was a walk for water. I, um, I, I just love the story and I just think it's so, it, it just so fits here when he saw a lilac tree, just went over and buried his face in it, like just to smell the, the lilacs. That's, that's, that's exactly it. That right there. That's exactly it. Uh, one of our first, it was either first softball game or our scrimmage. I can't remember. But one of the gentlemen from the other team prayed, um, God, we're thankful for the opportunity that we have to play a game. That we have the health to do it um, and we have the ability to do it. And I just remember praying and thinking, that's exactly it. That's it. It's a gift. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. But every moment, even in a softball game, is a gift from the Lord. And I think that this is really the underlying theme of the psalm. Thanksgiving is based on the faithfulness of God's character. Why do we give thanks? Because his loyalty is forever. It's got nothing to do with us. And this is a pretty radical countercultural message, I think, where the whole universe presumably revolves around us. That's not what the Bible offers. The Bible offers the opportunity to be grateful because God's faithfulness is forever. He's the center, not us. So what I want to do briefly now is I want to sketch out what this looks like with Psalm 136 as our guide. Um, I have chosen the title for this sermon, which I shamelessly ripped off from Stevie Wonder, uh, Psalms in the Key of Creation. I should have, I mean, Eric Clapton just released an album on Friday. I probably should have chosen. I couldn't make slow hand work or uh, any of that. So um, I'm stuck with Stevie Wonder. When, because when the Bible speaks about the greatness of God, or the faithfulness of his character, or tries to get human beings to take on a different perspective, it's often about God as the creator. Um, so I've picked a couple of these passages, and I really want to explore them uh, as opportunity allows. We'll start here with Psalm 136. So I think if you were to summarize the first nine verses, actually you do it. I'm going to take some water here. If you had to summarize the first nine verses... What would you say? What's that all about? It's about God as the creator. Give thanks, give thanks, give thanks. And it's about creation. So over and over again in the Bible, it shouldn't come as a shock to us that God is recognized as the creator of everything. 
So it's often in a context where he's being exalted or praised. The basis of worship in the Bible is that God is the creator. That's the, the underlying virtue or the underlying um, motivation behind worship in the Bible is that God has made everything. But it's also a reminder to people who might tend to think that they're God, right? So you have Pharaoh. If you go into Exodus, it's actually right there. Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? Meaning, I'm pretty sure I am, um, not, not the Lord Almighty. So um, frequently, sometimes what happens is there's a king in Israel, and the king makes an alliance with a foreign power instead of entrusting himself to the Lord, entrusting God's people to the Lord. So what he chooses to do is goes to a powerful king, and he makes an alliance. And God is pretty offended by that, frankly. It's one of the reasons that they get judged. Because God's response is, yeah, you know, I, I only made everything. Um, I certainly couldn't be trusted. I mean, it, it's, it's not word for word there, but it's almost a little bit ironic and sarcastic where God says, yeah, boy, I'm not, I'm not powerful enough to, to deliver you. You're right. Um, I mean, there was the whole Exodus thing. I split the Red Sea. Um, maybe you, you don't remember that. Yeah, all those stars you're looking at, yeah, I made those. Uh, but boy, I, you're right, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't help you here. And that's what God's response is. Um, because human beings think that they know better. On that continuum of entitlement, we think that we have to figure it out. Like, okay, we've got to go to a foreign alliance. Uh, and in order to gain that foreign alliance, we're going to have to take on some foreign gods. But, you know, God's going to understand because we can't trust him because his character is only forever. <laughs> I mean, it's only forever, so uh, there, we're, we're running out of time here. His faithfulness is, is forever. We can't, we can't trust him. Um, and it seems too small a thing for God to deliver us in this, those moments. Now, what is the obvious, if you look at the first nine verses, what does that look like for us? Now, we have some creation lovers here. Um, so the extension is, I mean, it's a pretty natural, like what might you do to change your perspective on the created order, right? You could, you could run outside, you could hike a mountain, you could recognize the beauty and all that God has made. You could stop and smell the roses, which is not in the Bible, but is as biblical as anything else in our constant rush and rush, and rush, and we're busy, and we're busy, and we're busy, we might actually stop and pause and reflect on all of existence as a gift from God, that he's the one who made the stars. He's the one who told the sea what its boundaries were. None of us have that kind of power. We might actually call a time out in our hectic lives and, and say that. Now, if that's your thing, that's awesome. If you love creation, so does God. It's a good thing. But we got some indoor cats here too. So the, the psalm isn't calling you to hike Mount Washington. Now, if you were to do that, that would be awesome. Um, but you'd have to share the summit sign with the people who drove up. And it's just not the same thing. And if you drag your limp carcass over to the sign and just try to prop your head on it so that you can get your picture taken, then you got people sprinting from their cars like, look, we made it. If you want to go hike Mount Washington, I think God loves that, and the appreciation of the natural world is awesome, but that's not what the psalm calls us to. From the safety of your own living room, you can appreciate that God is the creator of everything. 
You don't have to go outside to do that. I think you should. I don't have anything biblically to support that, uh, but a society with kids who are raised indoors is in trouble. Warning, warning. <laughs> Sorry, that you have a whole generation of kids who they're not, they're not feeling the love on the outdoors, and there's a whole lot that goes into that, I suppose, but it's a healthier thing to be outside because it broadens your perspective. The world's a big place, even if you just look around. It's, it's a big world. God's in charge of all of it. That might change our perspective. The second thing is verses 10 to 26. How would you, if you look over that quickly, it says that God is uh, loyalty, his loyalty endures in creation. He's the maker of everything. We should be grateful because everything exists. But the next one is a little bit different for some of us. Be grateful because his loyalty endures in redemption. Now, God is not merely the creator of everything. And I think in some ways this becomes a very impersonal conception of God, that he's omni, 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 but doesn't care about the day-to-day circumstances of my life. Um, It's kind of the, the man upstairs of a country western song. And a majority of people still believe in a higher power, who created everything. So that is, is just not enough. What we need is the Bible's specific vision of, yes, he is the God who created everything, but the next 16 verses go on to describe God's deliverance of his people in various circumstances. So the foreverness of God's loyalty is determined uh, by his purposes in redemption, not just that he created everything. And for you karate people memorizing doctrine, that's the difference between special revelation and general revelation. General revelation is you can look at a tree and know that God exists. You can look at the stars and say there's a higher power who made all those things. But none of you ever looked at a tree and said, Jesus died for my sins. You didn't learn that from the tree. It takes special revelation to do that. And that's what verses 10 to 26 are doing. Um, The foreverness of God's character in his faithfulness to his people and in their redemption. And you can quickly scan the psalm to see that God delivers his people in the exodus. He faithfully leads them in the wilderness. He promised Abraham that they would inhabit the land, and that's exactly what they did. Um, God's provision of food for all flesh, that's how the psalm sort of ends. God is the one who provides these things. And what's the response? His love endures forever. So God isn't just the God who provides in terms of creation, but he still cares closely for the redemption of his people, bringing them to saving faith in Christ. That's stuff that God still cares about. So the hard part here is not really an understanding. Like, that's the basic layout of the psalm, and I think, I could be wrong here, but it's a pretty easy thing to see. The first nine verses are about creation. The rest of it's about redemption. You got a lot of repetition throughout, and we talked about why that is. But what do we do about this? And I think that we need to reorient our understanding of God. And I can't begin to download my software onto your hardware to make things or ideas resonate with you. I don't know what ideas about God's character really resonate with you, but the more I've reflected on this, and I can't even tell you why 
at this point. I just find the idea that God's loyalty is forever to be something that I can hang my hat on. I find that to be an anchor in the midst of life's circumstances. On another level, I think that it really could change our perspective if we recognize that every ounce of our existence is dependent on God. I mean, how would that change things if our first response was gratitude? We've talked about this in our home uh, with the meniscus surgery for Cynthia and even thinking about Pastor Fred's surgery. What a blessing it is to, to live in a society where we have access to this kind of medical care. That's a gift. Like Cynthia in other cultures would be crippled. Like that's it. There's not going to be a meniscus surgery. I'm not going to be able to drive over to Bedford, get her knee scoped. And not even, we're not even talking about tearing the thing open. Like, that's a gift. And yeah, there are inconveniences that come with that. And it becomes a discipline to remind ourselves to be grateful. But that's a gift. How would our perspective change if we just lived that way? And I, I'm opening that up to the floor. If you want to testify to some of that or, you know, go ahead and shoot your hand up. I find that this is something that I've been struggling with over the last year, um, and maybe that's why it really resonates with me, is this gratitude is dependent on the faithfulness of God's character. And I think the more access to stuff that we have, I don't see that producing in us a blessing for others, because that was the promise Abram would be blessed so that his descendants could be a blessing to others. It wasn't just about them. And maybe, like, this is a geographically specific thing in this culture. Everything around us teaches us that we're the center of the universe. We make passive-aggressive comments because we feel like we're entitled to be the ones to be the distributors of information. And we're offended by everything moral outrage is our export. Can you believe? I guess, because it happened. Uh, yeah, I can believe that it happened, but that we're just so quick to be, and I'm not talking about the PC stuff, right? I'm, I'm talking about us. Uh, we're just so quick to be offended by the littlest thing and so quick to exercise our moral outrage about everything. How might that change if we changed our perspective on the faithfulness and the fidelity of God's character? that it's not about us. It's about him. It's about his loyalty being forever. And what if our attitude was that even when our circumstances stink, right? Can I be honest with you? I'm not Pollyanna about this stuff. Oh, look at that. It's raining. Awesome. Right? No. Oh, look at that. A big branch fell across my car. Yes. Praise you, Jesus. I'm not that way at all. Um, but at the same time, what if our response was legitimate gratitude? I don't know what that looks like in that circumstance. But at the very least, I could say there is more going right in the world right now than is going wrong for me in my personal circumstances. We're in the midst of a political season, and the sky is falling. 
It's like four years ago. The sky is falling. And I think, if I do my math correctly, four years ago, before that, the sky was falling. We somehow think that the purposes of God in the world are dependent on us and our, and I use capital U period S period. We think it's dependent on us. Things are going bad for us. God, just come back. How many of us have actually explored that God's doing some remarkable things elsewhere in the world? What if our first response was not, not getting mine, versus gratitude that God still bears with creation in the first place? How would that change things? And I think that's really close to the heart of the psalm. And I think it's close to the heart of the Bible on these issues. I think that God really wants to press his loving character as the fundamental reality. His faithfulness is forever. Even when the political party not of your choice is in power. I don't see it anywhere. I I didn't do any text critical work. I didn't see in the original Hebrew that God's faithfulness is forever as long as, you know, the Republicans are in the majority. I mean, I'm sorry, I don't mean to, to be offensive, but at the same time, we just somehow think that God's purposes in the world are, are dependent on us, when I think I could make the case that we make a bigger mess of things than anything, right? I mean, come on. If we could be entrusted with those things to do a good job, maybe, but I'm hard-pressed to think that things are getting better. Um, So, if we were to broaden our perspective and see that God's faithfulness is forever in creation, in redemption, in the circumstances in the world, there's more going right in the world than going wrong. And I think the only way to reorient is to engage in a discipline. You have to cultivate a life. Uh, You have to discipline yourself to list the way that God's shown his faithful love. We need correction when we wander down the continuum, right, from gratitude to entitlement. You need to be corrected. You need to be brought back to gratitude. I've put some things on there uh, just as an opportunity for reflection. But spend some time reading Exodus 34, 5 through 7. That's when God reveals himself uh, to Moses, and he, he uses this steadfast love word to describe his character. And there's just tons of times this word is used in the Bible to describe God's character. Pick one of the Chesterton quotes. Spend some time reflecting on that. Open yourself up to the Lord in terms of, God, what might you have in this? In what ways am I not grateful? In what ways do my words betray that I'm not grateful? What are the ways that I could be more grateful? What are the ways that I could express that to other people? What are the ways that your word calls me to that? And over time, with the empowering presence of God's Spirit, might we be faithful image bearers, uh, growing and displaying our own faithful love for God and for others marked by gratitude. So here's what we're going to do. You've been sitting. I need you to stand. Come on, get up. You can set your Bible down. You don't need it. We're going to read this. Feel free to stretch. It's all right. Go ahead. Limber up. We're not doing any calisthenics, so don't, you're not going to pull a muscle. Steve's not moving around very fast. All right. So I'm going to read the psalm, 
and then you're going to respond. Now, because we all have different translations, it's going to be a little bit weird. So I'm going to do the translating, and I'm just going to tell you what to say. Now, that might seem inauthentic to you, but the repetition of the phrase, I think it's not... (laughs) I'm not going to call it magic, because that would be offensive. But I think that there's something to the repetition of the phrase, and I think that's why God uh, has had that repetition here. So here's how we're going to read it. And it's going to be so obvious to you when to say it. And I don't have to give a nod and a wink and signs like and, and Nick stealing third base or something. Um, so you're going to say, because his loyalty is forever. Let's practice. One more time. Excellent. Okay. Now, I'm going to let you decide how you inflect, right? You don't have to, you, you, you just say it how you want to say it. But I think when this was read publicly, you would have had this sort of repetition. And it's a combination of stating it publicly so that we're declaring the truth to each other, but it's also spending some time in reflecting on God's faithful character. When we repeat the phrase, you can mock it if you want, but that's how we internalize things, the repetition of the phrase. So we're going to do that, and then I'll invite the worship team back up. You can stay standing after that. I've actually saved you uh, a step. You you can just stay standing, and then we'll sing a a hymn together. So I'm going to read, and then you're going to respond. And how are you going to respond? Some of you kind of fell behind. That's all right. That's all right. Because it's a combination of public reading, but also really reflecting on on what the words mean. You ready? Anybody anxious or anybody need to hug it out? All right. Good. You're going to make it. All right. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him who alone does great wonders. To him who made the heavens with skill. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights, the sun to rule by day, the moon and stars to rule by night, to him who smote the Egyptians in their firstborn and brought Israel out from their midst. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder. And made Israel pass through the midst of it. He overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. To him who smote great kings and slew mighty kings. 
Sihon, king of the Amorites. And Og, king of Bashan. And gave their land as a heritage. Even a heritage to Israel, his servant. Who remembered us in our low estate. And has rescued us from our adversaries. Who gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven. Let's pray. God, we're grateful that you are faithful to us when we are not. We're grateful that uh, it is not because of us, but often in spite of us, that your faithfulness is forever. God, I'm grateful that you have preserved the honor of your name, that you have maintained the covenant even when you're under no uh, compulsion, under no constraint to do so. Your character is trustworthy. You are faithful to your people. Even when we wander, even uh, when we are unlovable and idolatrous uh, and openly mock you, God, your, your loyalty is forever. God, we know that it's a work of your spirit that brings about transformation. Uh, you know the idols of our culture. You know the darkness in our own hearts. You know our attitudes and every disposition that we have. And we require your spirit to transform us. And God, I pray that you would do that. Help us to have conversations that matter. Help us not to talk about change or transformation. Help us to engage in it. Aid us by your spirit. Uh, compel us by the example of Jesus. Help us to be faithful, not just to you, but to each other, uh, to our city, to our world. Uh, help us to show our loyalty to you. We thank you for your generosity. We thank you that uh, we have this word in a language that we can understand. Help us to be grateful even for that that we can understand your thoughts and understand your ways. 